This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The White People by Arthur Mackin Read by Charles Blakemore Part 3 Nurse said there was once a young lady of the high gentry who lived in a great castle, and she was so beautiful that all the gentlemen wanted to marry her, because she was the loveliest lady that anybody had ever seen, and she was kind to everybody, and everybody thought she was very good. But though she was polite to all the gentlemen who wished to marry her, she put them off, and said she couldn't make up her mind, and she wasn't sure she wanted to marry anybody at all. And her father, who was a great lord, was angry, though he was so fond of her, and he asked her why she wouldn't choose a bachelor out of all the handsome young men who came to the castle. But she only said that she didn't love any of them very much, and she must wait, and if they pestered her, she said she would go and be a nun in a nunnery. So all the gentlemen said they would go away and wait for a year and a day, and when a year and a day were gone, they would come back again and ask her to say which one she would marry. So the day was appointed, and they all went away. And the lady had promised that in a year and a day it would be her wedding day with one of them. But the truth was that she was the queen of the people who danced on the hill on summer nights. And on the proper nights she would lock the door of her room, and she and her maid would steal out of the castle by a secret passage that only they knew of and go away up to the hill in the wild land. And she knew more of the secret things than anyone else, and more than anyone knew before or after, because she would not tell anybody the most secret secrets. She knew how to do all the awful things, how to destroy young men, and how to put a curse on people, and other things that I could not understand. And her real name was the Lady Avalon, but the dancing people called her Kassap, which meant somebody very wise in the old language. And she was whiter than any of them, and taller, and her eyes shone in the dark like burning rubies. And she could sing songs that none of the others could sing, and when she sang they all fell down on their faces and worshipped her. And she could do what they called Shib-show, which was a very wonderful enchantment. She would tell the great lord, her father, that she wanted to go into the woods to gather flowers, so he let her go. And she and her maid went into the woods where nobody came, and the maid would keep watch. Then the lady would lie down under the trees and begin to sing a particular song. And she stretched out her arms, and from every part of the wood great serpents would come, hissing and gliding in and out among the trees, and shooting out their forked tongues as they crawled up to the lady and they all came to her and twisted round her, round her body and her arms and her neck, till she was covered with writhing serpents, and there was only her head to be seen. And she whispered to them, and she sang to them, and they writhed round and round, faster and faster, till she told them to go. And they all went away directly back to their holes, and on the lady's breast there would be a most curious, beautiful stone, shaped something like an egg, and colored dark blue and yellow and red and green, marked like a serpent's scales. 
was called a glame stone, and with it one could do all sorts of wonderful things. And the nurse said her great-grandmother had seen a glame stone with her own eyes, and it was for all the world shiny and scaly like a snake. And the lady could do a lot of other things as well, but she was quite fixed that she would not be married. And there were a great many gentlemen who wanted to marry her, but there were five of them who were chief, and their names were Sir Simon, Sir John, Sir Oliver, Sir Richard, and Sir Roland. All the others believed she spoke the truth, and that she would choose one of them to be her man, when a year and a day was done. It was only Sir Simon who was very crafty, who thought she was deceiving them all, and he vowed he would watch and try if he could find out anything. And though he was very wise, he was very young, and he had a smooth, soft face like a girl's, and he pretended, as the rest did, that he would not come to the castle for a year and a day, and he said he was going away beyond the sea to foreign parts. But he really only went a very little way, and came back dressed like a servant girl, and so he got a place in the castle to wash the dishes. And he waited and watched, and he listened and said nothing, and he hid in dark places, and woke up at night and looked out, and he heard things and he saw things that he thought were very strange. And he was so sly that he told the girl that waited on the lady that he was really a young man and that he had dressed up as a girl because he loved her so very much and wanted to be in the same house with her, and the girl was so pleased that she told him many things, and he was more than ever certain that the lady Avalyn was deceiving him and the others. And he was so clever and told the servant so many lies that one night he managed to hide in the lady Avalyn's room behind the curtains, and he stayed quite still and never moved, and at last the lady came. And she bent down under the bed, and raised up a stone, and there was a hollow place underneath. And out of it she took a waxen image, just like the clay one that I and Nurse had made in the break. And all the time her eyes were burning like rubies. And she took the little wax doll up in her arms, and held it to her breast, and she whispered, and she murmured, and she took it up, and she laid it down again, and she held it high, and she held it low, and she laid it down again. And she said, Happy is he that begat the bishop, that ordered the clerk, that married the man, that had the wife, that fashioned the hive, that harbored the bee, that gathered the wax that my own true love was made of. And she brought out of an ombre a great golden bowl, and she brought out of a closet a great jar of wine, and she poured some of the wine into the bowl, and she laid her mannikin very gently in the wine, and washed it in the wine all over. Then she went to a cupboard, and took a small round cake, and laid it on the image's mouth, and then she bore it softly and covered it up. And Sir Simon, who was watching all the time, though he was terribly frightened, saw the lady bend down, and stretch out her arms, and whisper and sing, and then Sir Simon saw beside her a handsome young man, who kissed her on the lips. And they drank wine out of the golden bowl together, and they ate the cake together. But when the sun rose there was only the little wax doll, and the lady hid it again under the bed in the hollow place. So Sir Simon knew quite well what the lady was. 
and he waited, and he watched, till the time she had said was nearly over, and in a week the year and a day would be done. And one night, when he was watching behind the curtains in her room, he saw her making more wax dolls, and she made five and hid them away. And the next night she took one out and held it up, and filled the golden bowl with water, and took the doll by the neck and held it under the water. Then she said, Sir Dickon, Sir Dickon, your day is done. You shall be drowned in the water wan. And the next day news came to the castle that Sir Richard had been drowned at the ford. And at night she took another doll and tied a violet cord round its neck and hung it up on a nail. Then she said, Sir Roland, your life has ended its span. High on a tree I see you hang. And the next day news came to the castle that Sir Roland had been hanged by robbers in the wood. And at night she took another doll and drove her bodkin right into its heart. Then she said, Sir Noll, Sir Noll, so cease your life. Your heart is pierced with the knife. And the next day news came to the castle that Sir Oliver had fought in a tavern, and a stranger had stabbed him to the heart. And at night she took another doll and held it to a fire of charcoal till it was melted. And then she said, Sir John, return and turn to clay. In fire of fever you waste away. And the next day news came to the castle that Sir John had died in a burning fever. So then Sir Simon went out of the castle and mounted his horse and rode away to the bishop and told him everything. And the bishop sent his men, and they took the Lady Avalon, and everything she had done was found out. So on the day after the year and a day when she was to have been married, they carried her through the town in her smock, and they tied her to a great stake in the market-place, and burned her alive before the bishop with her wax image hung round her neck. And the people said the wax-man screamed in the burning of the flames. And I thought of this story again and again, as I was lying awake in my bed, and I seemed to see the Lady Avalon in the market-place, with the yellow flames eating up her beautiful white body, and I thought of it so much that I seemed to get into the story myself, and I fancied that I was the lady, and that they were coming to take me to be burnt with fire, with all the people in the town looking at me. And I wondered whether she cared after all the strange things she had done, and whether it hurt very much to be burnt at the stake. I tried again and again to forget nurse's stories, and to remember the secret I had seen that afternoon, and what was in the secret wood, but I could only see the dark and a glimmering in the dark, and then it went away, and I only saw myself running, and then a great moon came up white over a dark round hill. Then all the old stories came back again, and the queer rhymes that nurse used to sing to me, and there was one beginning, Halsey Cumsey Helen Musty, that she used to sing very softly when she wanted me to go to sleep and I began to sing it to myself inside of my head, and I went to sleep. The next morning I was very tired and sleepy, and could hardly do my lessons, and I was very glad when they were over and I had my dinner, as I wanted to go out and be alone. It was a warm day, and I went to a nice turfy hill by the river, and sat down in my mother's old shawl that I had brought with me on purpose. 
The sky was gray like the day before, but there was a kind of white gleam behind it, and from where I was sitting I could look down on the town and it was all still and quiet and white, like a picture. I remembered that it was on that hill that Nurse taught me to play an old game called Troy Town, in which one had to dance and wind in and out on a pattern in the grass. And then when one had danced and turned long enough, the other person asks you questions, and you can't help answering whether you want to or not, and whatever you are told to do, you feel you have to do it. Nurse said there used to be a lot of games like that, that some people knew of. And there was one by which people could be turned into anything you liked. And an old man her great-grandmother had seen, had known a girl who had been turned into a large snake. And there was another very ancient game of dancing and winding and turning, by which you could take a person out of himself and hide him away as long as you liked, and his body went walking about quite empty without any sense in it. But I came to that hill because I wanted to think of what had happened the day before, and of the secret of the wood. From the place where I was sitting I could see beyond the town, into the opening I had found, where a little brook had led me into an unknown country. And I pretended I was following the brook over again, and I went all the way in my mind, and at last I found the wood and crept into it under the bushes, and then in the dusk I saw something that made me feel as if I were filled with fire as if I wanted to dance and sing and fly up into the air, because I was changed and wonderful. But what I saw was not changed at all, and had not grown old. And I wondered again and again how such things could happen, and whether nurses' stories were really true, because in the daytime, in the open air, everything seemed quite different from what it was at night, when I was frightened and thought I was to be burned alive. I once told my father one of her little tales, which was about a ghost, and asked him if it was true, and he told me it was not true at all, and that only common, ignorant people believed in such rubbish. He was very angry with Nurse for telling me the story, and scolded her, and after that I promised her I would never whisper a word of what she told me, and if I did I should be bitten by the great black snake that lived in the pool in the wood. And all alone on the hill I wondered what was true. I had seen something very amazing and very lovely, and I knew a story, and if I had really seen it and not made it up out of the dark and the black bough and the bright shining that was mounting up to the sky from over the great round hill, but had really seen it in truth, then there were all kinds of wonderful and lovely and terrible things to think of, so I longed and trembled and I burned and got cold. And I looked down to the, on the town, so quiet and still, like a little white picture, and I thought over and over if it could be true. I was a long time before I could make up my mind to anything. There was such a strange fluttering at my heart that seemed to whisper to me all the time that I had not made it up out of my head, and yet it seemed quite impossible. And I knew my father and everybody would say it was dreadful rubbish. I never dreamed of telling him or anybody else a word about it, because I knew it would be of no use, and I should only get laughed at or scolded, so for a long time I was very quiet, and went about thinking and wondering, 
and at night I used to dream of amazing things, and sometimes I woke up in the early morning and held out my arms with a cry. And I was frightened, too, because there were dangers, and some awful thing would happen to me unless I took great care if the story were true. These old tales were always in my head, night and morning, and I went over them, and told them to myself over and over again, and went for walks in the places where nurse had told them to me. And when I sat in the nursery by the fire in the evenings, I used to fancy nurse was sitting in the other chair, and telling me some wonderful story in a low voice, for fear anybody should be listening. But she used to like best to tell me about things when we were right out in the country, far from the house, because she said she was telling me such secrets and walls have ears. And if it was something more than ever secret, we had to hide in brakes or woods. And I used to think it was such fun creeping along a hedge and going very softly. And then we would get behind the bushes or run into the wood all of a sudden when we were sure that none was watching us. So we knew that we had our secrets quite all to ourselves, and nobody else at all knew anything about them. Now and then, when we had hidden ourselves, as I have described, she used to show me all sorts of odd things. One day, I remember, we were in a hazel brake, overlooking the brook, and we were so snug and warm as though it was April. The sun was quite hot, and the leaves were just coming out. Nurse said she would show me something funny that would make me laugh, and then she showed me, as she said, how one could turn a whole house upside down without anybody being able to find out, and the pots and pans would jump about, and the china would be broken, and the chairs would tumble over of themselves. I tried it one day in the kitchen, and found I could do it quite well, and a whole row of plates on the dresser fell off it, and Cook's little work-table tilted up and turned right over before her eyes, as she said, but she was so frightened and turned so white that I didn't do it again as I liked her. And afterwards, in the hazel copse, when she had shown me how to make things tumble about, she showed me how to make rapping noises, and I learnt how to do that, too. Then she taught me rhymes to say on certain occasions, and peculiar marks to make on other occasions, and other things that her great-grandmother had taught her when she was a little girl herself. And these were all the things I was thinking about in those days after the strange walk when I thought I had seen a great secret, and I wished Nurse were there for me to ask her about it, but she had gone away more than two years before, and nobody seemed to know what had become of her, or where she had gone. But I shall always remember those days if I live to be quite old, because all the time I felt so strange, wondering and doubting, and feeling quite sure at one time, and making up my mind, and then I would feel quite sure that such things couldn't really happen, and it began all over again. But I took great care not to do certain things that might be very dangerous. So I waited and wondered for a long time, and though I was not sure at all, I never dared to try to find out. But one day I became sure that all that Nurse had said was quite true, and I was all alone when I found it out. I trembled all over with joy and terror, and as fast as I could I ran into one of the old breaks where we used to go. It was the one by the lane, 
where nurse made the little clay man, and I ran into it and I crept into it, and when I came to the place where the elder was, I covered up my face with my hands and lay down flat on the grass, and I stayed there for two hours without moving, whispering to myself delicious, terrible things, and saying some words over and over again. It was all true and wonderful and splendid. And when I remembered the story I knew and thought of what I had really seen, I got hot and I got cold, and the air seemed full of scent and flowers and singing. And first I wanted to make a little clay man like the one nurse had made so long ago, and I had to invent plans and stratagems, and to look about, and to think of things beforehand, because nobody must dream of anything that I was doing or going to do and I was too old to carry clay about in a tin bucket. At last I thought of a plan, and I brought the wet clay to the break and did everything that nurse had done, only I made a much finer image than the one she had made. And when it was finished I did everything that I could imagine, and much more than she did, because it was the likeness of something far better. And a few days later, when I had done my lessons early, I went for the second time by the way of the little brook that had led me into a strange country. And I followed the brook and went through the bushes and beneath the low branches of trees and up thorny thickets on the hill and by dark woods full of creeping thorns a long, long way. Then I crept through the dark tunnel where the brook had been, and the ground was stony, till at last I came to the thicket that climbed up the hill and though the leaves were coming out upon the trees, everything looked almost as black as it was on the first day that I went there. And the thicket was just the same, and I went up slowly till I came out on the big bare hill and began to walk among the wonderful rocks. I saw the terrible voor again on everything, for though the sky was brighter, the ring of wild hills all around was still dark, and the hanging woods looked dark and dreadful and the strange rocks were as gray as ever. And when I looked down on them, from the great mound, sitting on the stone, I saw all their amazing circles and rounds within rounds, and I had to sit quite still and watch them as they began to turn about me, and each stone danced in its place, and they seemed to go round and round in a great whirl, as if one were in the middle of all the stars and heard them rushing through the air. So I went down among the rocks to dance with them and to sing extraordinary songs, and I went down through the other thicket and drank from the bright stream in the close and secret valley, putting my lips down to the bubbling water. And then I went on till I came to the deep brimming well among the glittering moss, and I sat down. I looked before me into the secret darkness of the valley, and behind me was the great high wall of grass, and all around me. There were the hanging woods that made the valley such a secret place. I knew there was nobody here at all besides me, and that no one could see me. So I took off my boots and stockings and let my feet down into the water, saying the words that I knew. It was not cold at all, as I expected, but warm and very pleasant, and when my feet were in it I felt as if they were in silk, or as if the nymph were kissing them. So when I had done, I said the other words and made the signs, and then I dried my feet with a towel I had brought on purpose, 
and put on my stockings and boots. Then I climbed up the steep wall and went into the place where there were the hollows and the two beautiful mounds and the round ridges of land and all the strange shapes. I did not go down into the hollow this time, but I turned at the end and made out the figures quite plainly as it was lighter and I had remembered the story I had quite forgotten before, and in the story the two figures are called Adam and Eve, and only those who know the story understand what they mean. So I went on and on till I came to the secret wood which must not be described, and I crept into it by the way I had found. And when I had gone about halfway I stopped and looked round and got ready, and I bound the handkerchief tightly round my eyes and made quite sure that I could not see at all, not a twig, nor the end of a leaf, nor the light of the sky, as, as it was an old red silk handkerchief with large yellow spots that went round twice and covered my eyes so that I could see nothing. Then I began to go on, step by step, very slowly. My heart beat faster and faster, and something rose in my throat that choked me and made me want to cry out, but I shut my lips and went on. Boughs caught in my hair as I went, and great thorns tore me, but I went on to the end of the path. Then I stopped and held up my arms and bowed, and I went round the first time feeling with my hands, and there was nothing. I went round the second time feeling with my hands, and there was nothing. Then I went round the third time feeling with my hands, and the story was all true. And I wished that the years were gone by, and that I had not so long a time to wait before I was happy for ever and ever. Nurse must have been a prophet like those we read of in the Bible. Everything that she said began to come true, and since then other things that she told me of have happened. That was how I came to know that her stories were true and that I had not made up the secret myself out of my own head. But there was another thing that happened that day. I went a second time to the secret place. It was at the deep brimming well, and when I was standing on the moss I bent over and looked in, and then I knew who the white lady was that I had seen come out of the water in the wood long ago when I was quite little, and I trembled all over because that told me other things. Then I remembered how, some time after I had seen the white people in the wood, Nurse asked me more about them, and I told her all over again, and she listened, and said nothing for a long, long time, and at last she said, You will see her again. So I understood what had happened, and what was to happen, and I understood about the nymphs, how I might meet them in all kinds of places, and they would always help me, and I must always look for them, and find them in all sorts of strange shapes and appearances. And without the nymphs I could never have found the secret, and without them none of the other things could happen. Nurse had told me all about them long ago, but she called them by another name, and I did not know what she meant, or what her tales of them were about, only that they were very queer. And there were two kinds, the bright and the dark, and both were very lovely and very wonderful, and some people saw only one kind, and some only the other, but some saw them both. 
but usually the dark appeared first and the bright ones afterwards, and there were extraordinary tales about them. It was a day or two after I had come home from the secret place that I first really knew the nymphs. Nurse had shown me how to call them, and I had tried, but I did not know what she meant, and so I thought it was all nonsense. But I made up my mind I would try again. So I went to the wood where the pool was, where I saw the white people, and I tried again. The dark nymph, Alana, came, and she turned the pool of water into a pool of fire. Epilogue That's a very queer story, said Cotgrave, handing back the green book to the recluse, Ambrose. I see the drift of a good deal, but there are many things I do not grasp at all. On the last page, for example, what does she mean by nymphs? Well, I think there are references throughout the manuscript to certain processes which have been handed down by tradition from age to age. Some of these processes are just beginning to come within the purview of science, which has arrived at them, or rather at the steps which lead to them, by quite different paths. I have interpreted the reference to nymphs as a reference to one of these processes. And you believe that there are such things? Oh, I think so. Yes, I believe I could give you a convincing evidence on that point. I'm afraid you've neglected the study of alchemy. It is a pity, for the symbolism at all events is very beautiful. And moreover, if you were acquainted with certain books on the subject, I could recall to your mind phrases which might explain a good deal in the manuscript which you have been reading. Yes, but I want to know whether you seriously think that there is any foundation of fact behind these fancies. Is it not all a department of poetry, a curious dream with which man has indulged himself? I can only say that it is no doubt better for the great mass of people to dismiss it all as a dream. But if you ask me my veritable belief, that goes quite the other way. No, I should not say belief, but rather knowledge. I may tell you that I have known cases in which men have stumbled quite by accident on certain of these processes, and have been astonished by wholly unexpected results. In the cases I am thinking of, there could have been no possibility of suggestion or subconscious action of any kind. One might as well suppose a schoolboy suggesting the existence of Aeschylus to himself while he plods mechanically through the declensions. But you have noticed the obscurity, Ambrose went on, and in this particular case it must have been dictated by instinct, since the writer never thought that her manuscripts would fall into other hands. But the practice is universal, and for most excellent reasons. Powerful and sovereign medicines, which are of necessity virulent poisons also, are kept in a locked cabinet. The child may find the key by chance and drink herself dead, but in most cases the search is educational, and the files contain precious elixirs for him who has patiently fashioned the key for himself. You do not care to go into details? No, frankly, I do not. No, you must remain unconvinced. But you saw how the manuscript illustrates the talk we had last week. Is this girl still alive? No. I was one of those who found her. I knew the father well. He was a lawyer, and had always left her very much to herself. 
He thought of nothing but deeds and leases, and the news came to him as an awful surprise. She was missing one morning. I suppose it was about a year after she'd written what you have read. The servants were called, and they told things, and put the only natural interpretation on them, a perfectly erroneous one. They discovered that green book somewhere in her room, and I found her in the place that she described with so much dread, lying on the ground before the image. It was an image? Yes, it was hidden by the thorns and the thick undergrowth that had surrounded it. It was a wild, lonely country. But you know what it was like by her description, though of course you will understand that the colors have been heightened. A child's imagination always makes the heights higher and the depths deeper than they really are. And she had, unfortunately for herself, something more than imagination. One might say, perhaps, that the picture in her mind, which she succeeded in a measure in putting into words, was the scene as it would have appeared to an imaginative artist. But it is a strange, desolate land. And she was dead? Yes. She had poisoned herself. In time. No, there was not a word to be said against her in the ordinary sense. You may recollect a story I told you the other night about a lady who saw her child's fingers crushed by a window. And what was this statue? Well, it was of Roman workmanship, of a stone that with the centuries had not blackened but had become white and luminous. The thicket had grown up about it and concealed it, and in the Middle Ages the followers of a very old tradition had known how to use it for their own purposes. In fact, it had been incorporated into the monstrous mythology of the Sabbath. You will have noted that those to whom a sight of that shining whiteness had been vouchsafed by chance, or rather, perhaps by apparent chance, were required to blindfold themselves on their second approach. That is very significant. And is it there still? I sent for tools, and we hammered it into dust and fragments. The persistence of tradition never surprises me, Ambrose went on after a pause. I could name many an English parish where such traditions as that girl had listened to in her childhood are still existent in occult but unabated vigor. No, for me it is the story, not the sequel, which is strange and awful. For I have always believed that wonder is of the soul. End of The White People by Arthur Mackin